So before uh, my wife, Amy, and I and our, our kids lived here in Nashville, we lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. And if you're a regular, you probably get sick of hearing me talk about Vancouver. I just loved it so much, loved living up there. Um, you know, in some ways, Vancouver and Nashville, they had some similarities, but in a lot of ways, they were very different. Um, you know, population-wise, Nashville and Vancouver aren't too different, but there's a, it feels very different. And it's because the population density of Vancouver is a lot higher than Nashville. You know, Vancouver's kind of hemmed in on every side. I don't know if you know where it is. It's kind of in our Pacific Northwest. It's the southwestern corner of Canada. And it's hemmed in on one side by the ocean, on the northern side by the mountains, on the southern side by the U.S. border. And so you've got millions of people that are all kind of crammed into a relatively small area. And when we were living there, I think it's grown since then, but when we were living there, the population density of Vancouver was something like 12,000 people per square mile. I mean, it was just people just jammed everywhere you went. And there was one place that you became keenly aware of how densely populated Vancouver was, and that was any time you stepped onto public transit. And so there was a great bus system and a SkyTrain system, and my office was located on a transit thoroughfare that used a bus called the B-Line. And the B-Line was one of the main buses that went through Vancouver. It served kind of the hub of the SkyTrain, and it also served one of the major universities. And so almost any time of day when you got on there, it was just jammed with people. You know, when I would get off of work, I'd get on that bus, and it was always that kind of weird thing. It never filled. There was never a seat. And so you'd kind of get on the bus and squeeze between people, and you'd hold on to that weird little strap that's supposed to make you feel stable that doesn't do anything. And I'd hold on to it, and I'd be completely surrounded by humanity. I mean, just all around me, you can feel people's bodies bumping up against yours. You hear voices, mostly people talking on the phone, maybe talking to their friends. But there's also that kind of unfortunate reality. You could like feel the humanity of breath, like breathing all around you and the smell of humanity. It was just like, you are on this bus. And I remember being on the bus and it was one of the great ironies that I experienced of living in a place like Vancouver. One day I'm on the bus and I'm looking around and I see all these faces and I don't know a single one of them. And I remember going, wow, this is actually the most disconnected and lonely I have felt in this city ever. How ironic that a moment of being surrounded by humans that I would feel the most lonely because I felt disconnected from all of them and it seemed as though no one was interested in talking to one another. It was everybody was walled off. And I think this, this picture of the irony of feeling lonely in the midst of a large crowd really captures a picture of one of the great paradoxes of our culture today. You see, we are a more connected people than we've ever been. You hear this talk about all the time, right? We are the digital generation. You know, we're digitally connected that at any moment in time, I can pull this phone out of my pocket and I can have a face-to-face conversation with somebody on the other side of the planet. Man, that's cool. I, I can get on any plethora of social media platforms and I can see what my friends are up to and tell them what I think about it and they can see what I'm up to and they can tell me what they think about it. There is this ability to connect like never before in the history of the world. And at the same time as we are digitally connected, people are moving in mass numbers to urban centers or to cities across our country. The kind of the opposite of what happened in the 20th century where people fled cities and went out to the suburbs. It's like the opposite of that is happening now. People all want to move into cities and the forgotten places of urban cores are being gentrified and built up and people are moving in everywhere all because we long to be around one another. We long to be connected and feel connected to what's happening. And yet the great paradox in the middle of all of this is that amongst, amidst the, the connectivity, amidst the urbanization, 
we have seen loneliness rates just skyrocketing. That loneliness is increasing dramatically in our culture. You know, former uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, at the end of 2017, he came out and he just named it what it was. He said, listen, the United States is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. You know, it seems a little like kind of extreme to use the word epidemic when talking about loneliness, but when you start looking at the numbers, you begin to realize like, wow, Dr. Murthy is actually onto something here. Since the 1980s, loneliness rates in our country have doubled. One very recent survey found that, uh, uh, it was a survey of 20,000 Americans, it found that almost half of them reported feeling alone, left out, or isolated, and that one in five said they rarely or never feel close to other people. I mean, that's like living your entire life on the Beeline bus, surrounded by people, never feeling connected. And man, when you start looking at how loneliness affects us, it makes us really give pause to think. You know, uh, one recent study suggests that loneliness is deadlier than obesity that it leads to a weakened immune system, it leads to an increased risk of heart disease and an increased risk of mental illness. One psychologist said it this way, she said, we need to take loneliness seriously as a health issue. And that just as we need to make time in our busy lives to be physically active, we need to make time to be socially active. You know, it's in the midst of this kind of era of loneliness that I believe the gospel of Jesus can shine the brightest. You know, today we're gonna give this invitation to our whole church family to sign up for house churches. We've been talking about this for weeks. And and getting you to sign up for house church, we need you to understand this is not just our attempt to, to get you connected in our systems or our programs. This is not just our attempt to try to get you more bought into our church but it is our effort to live fully into the gospel of Jesus and the Jesus way of life. Because in this social situation of loneliness, the gospel of Jesus is like a beacon of hope to those who are drowning in disconnection from the people around them. And so we're gonna look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I think the writer of Hebrews has a lot to say to us about what connection looks like in the family of God. Before we read, we're gonna look at verses 19 to 25. Uh, But when we jump in and start reading, you're probably going to feel a little bit like you jumped in on the middle of a conversation um, because, you know, the the writer's been saying a whole lot before we get to verse 19. And so I'm going to tell you, try to set it up a little bit for us so we know what the writer is talking about. You know, some of the most intricate and beautiful theology that you'll find in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. You know, the writer of Hebrews takes a look at all of the Old Testament theology with all of its sacrifices and rituals and temple and tabernacles, all these things. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us understand how does all of that make sense when we line it up next to the gospel of Jesus. And ultimately what the writer of Hebrews is doing is going, how does all of that actually point us to Jesus and what does that mean for us right now? And we could spend weeks, months, and you know, forever kind of unpacking all of Hebrews. I'll give you just kind of a short snapshot of what the writer, kind of the conclusion they come to. Is the writer of Hebrews basically says this, listen, humanity is broken and flawed at the very center of our being. You know, and this sounds like kind of an offensive thing to say, but I think it's that thing that all of us know to be true. All of us have had that experience that there is this deep disconnect between who we want to be and who we actually are. 
that there's this deep disconnect in what we long for in human relationships and what we get. There's this deep disconnect in what we long for spiritually to connect with a, with a spiritual higher power and what we actually experience and that no matter how hard we try on our own efforts, we can't seem to get past that disconnect. And this is the brokenness that the writer of Hebrews is gonna write about. And the the writer's gonna say this, listen, humanity needs some sort of bridge and mending because there is this God who is supremely good, supremely kind, supremely loving, and supremely just. In fact, the, the creator God that the Hebrews writer will talk about is so good that we don't really even have a word to capture the goodness. And so we use this word, holy, which just means outside of our realm of comprehension. And in the midst of our brokenness, we long for a connection to that supreme goodness. And what the writer of Hebrews is gonna say is that the sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead is what alleviated that gap between a broken humanity and a perfectly loving God. And that because of Jesus, there no longer has to be the gap, no longer has to be the gap between us and God and between us and one another that Jesus bridges that gap. And this is what he's just finished saying kind of at the beginning of chapter 10 is understanding that by this one sacrifice, Jesus has made everything perfect that is continually being made holy like God. And then in verse 19, he's going to jump in to say, okay, because of all of that, this is what we do. So listen to what he says. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, in other words, confidence to come into God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that's imagery from the temple, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so the writer's saying, hey, because of all of these things, listen to verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord out of Hebrews chapter 10. You know, I think it's beautiful and kind of very interesting that as the writer of Hebrews writes out all these thoughts and comes to their conclusions about what the sacrifice of Jesus means and what it means for us, that the writer never once uses a singular personal pronoun. And what I mean by that is this, if you read through that passage, never once does the writer say I or me or you singular. All the way through, it is we, it is let us, it is brothers and sisters, it is our bodies, let us consider over and over again, it is this plural reality that to step into the gospel of Jesus means that we don't do this just alone, but we do it together. You know, we live in a culture that will try to tell you that your faith and your spirituality are a private matter and you should keep it to yourself. Thank you very much. But for followers of Jesus, we understand that the pursuit of Jesus is not something we do. It is not a solo sport, but it's something we do with one another together. John Wesley said it this way. He said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. 
So the question we have to ask in the face of looking at Hebrews is if the gospel is supposed to bring this togetherness and that's part of the good news, then why is it so hard? Why is it that for many of us, our experience of church feels more like riding the Beeline bus in Vancouver, surrounded by humanity, surrounded by people, and yet feeling disconnected and alone. You know, I believe that there are very real barriers, and I think the writer of Hebrews understood that there are barriers to us being able to push through the barriers of loneliness to connectivity, to being intimately joined in the name of Jesus. And I think the writer of Hebrews is going to address these barriers and help us understand how we find our identity as part of a family in the midst of a culture that's trying to push us into loneliness. I'm going to give you kind of four words, and then we'll walk through the text, and you'll see what those words are conveniently. All four of those words start with a T, and so just like a good preacher, I wanted to alliterate so you can remember. Uh, the, the four words are this, tenacity, time, transparency, and truth. Tenacity, time, transparency, and truth. And so we'll take each one of these words one at a time, and we're actually going to walk through the text going backwards, because I think it will help us to understand some of what's happening in our context. So uh, we're going to start with this word tenacity. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. The writer says, don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. He says, don't give up meeting together. You know, I think many of us, myself included, we often think, hey, how, what is it I need to do in order to grow spiritually? How do I grow in my walk with Jesus? How do I grow as a spiritual being? And we automatically kind of go to these areas that we go, oh, I, I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to have a personal quiet time in the morning. I need to have more meditation time. And we automatically begin thinking of the individual things that all of those things are important. And we need those. But what I think is so fascinating is for the writer of Hebrews, as he's trying to spur on his readers, he doesn't say, hey, because of all this, then spend more time by yourself. No, he says, hey, because of all of this, don't give up meeting together. That there's something significant about being together. You know, when I was growing up, I heard this taught quite a bit, and it was taught out of a different translation of the Bible, and the translation was, don't forsake the assembly. Do not forsake the assembly. And, and this phrase and this teaching uh, were kind of used as a sort of guilt-inducing mandate to make sure you never miss church on a Sunday morning. You know, I, I don't believe that's what's happening in this passage. I don't believe this is so much of a mandate to attend a large Sunday gathering as it is a mandate for Christians to be committed to meeting regularly for the purpose of mutual encouragement. Look at what he says. He says, he says don't give up meeting together as some do, but encourage one another. Now, here's the reality. Sunday gathering of believers is biblical and godly and necessary and good. But in our culture, it can also become a place where you slide in, you listen to some songs, you hear a pastor, and you hope that pastor is the one to encourage you, but there's never any mixing and mingling with another follower of Jesus, and you can slide right out. And see, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, he's not saying, hey, go to church so you can be encouraged by your pastor. He says, no, come together with the family of God so that you can mutually encourage one another. There's something beautiful that happens when the people of God come together for the sake of mutual encouragement. You know, I love the way that John Piper says it. He says, the fire of love can be ignited 
with the kindling of encouragement and the match of the Holy Spirit anytime in any place that two Christians communicate with each other. I love that. Anytime, any place. In other words, this act of mutually encouraging can happen anywhere, but the reason that the writer is writing is because it's not just going to happen on its own. It takes some tenacious intentionality in order to make that connection take place. You see, in our culture, there are very real barriers that try to stand between you and connecting with the family of God. I think one of these barriers is something that's called perceived social isolation. You know, perceived social isolation kind of says that, hey, I'm perceiving that I'm alone, and as I perceive that I'm alone, there's this weird paradox that starts to happen. I long to be connected, but I look at a social event and it feels terrifying, so I pull away. And then I long to be connected, but it feels terrifying, so I pull away. And the more we perceive ourselves to be isolated, the more lonely we feel and the more we tend to pull away and it works against, but all the while the longing to be connected never goes anywhere. It's this barrier to being able to push through and it takes tenacity to say, I'm going to push through. Another barrier that we face is that we just have so many options thrown at us. I mean, have you ever noticed how many options there are for ways for you to spend your time during the week? There's so much. It's coming at you all the time, everywhere you look. Every time you pick this thing up, you see an event that's happening. You're like, oh man, I wanna be there. I wish I could be there. You can't be at everything. And so our culture is riddled by this thing called fear of missing out. There's so many options. And if I commit to any one of them, then I'll miss out on the rest of them. So I'll just stay at home and keep up on social media with what happens. (laughs) Isn't it ironic? There's these very real barriers perceived social isolation and the fear that comes there. Too many options and the fear of missing out. But here's here's the reality. If we want to grow with Jesus, it's going to take some tenacity to push through and to seek it out. I remember watching this in the example my parents set for me growing up. You know, my parents kind of had this, I had this understanding growing up that if there was something going on with our church or with our youth group, we were gonna be there. We were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and we were gonna be there every Wednesday night for a small gathering of people. If there was a youth event, my parents were gonna bring me and they were gonna be there as well. And this was not a legalistic, heavy-handed attempt to get of them to try to pressure me into doing what they do. Instead, what they were doing is modeling for me what it looks like to set priorities. Because here's the thing, Ethos. If I'm going to take my walk with Jesus seriously, then I have to take my walk with my brothers and sisters seriously. They're they're inseparable. They go together. I'm part of a family. There's no such thing as solitary religion when it comes to the ways of Jesus. And so it just hit me this week where I was kind of stretched in this. Three or four weeks ago, my wife and I signed our six-year-old son up for baseball. We went to our first practice last Saturday And it was great practice, you know, two hours being in the sun. And then the coach comes out to say, hey, uh, just FYI, all of our practices are going to be on Wednesday nights and our games will be on Saturday. And I went, ah, I have a house church on Wednesday nights. It meets in my house that I'm leading. I can't take my son to baseball. And in this moment, I could have looked at it as this huge letdown to my son, but I told my son and I told the coach, I said, hey, we can't be at practices. We'll be at any other practice that you set up. We'll be at every game on Saturday. I'll help out, but we will not be there Wednesday nights 
because I need my family to know, I need my sons and my daughter to know that if they want to take their walk with Jesus seriously, then they have to take their walk with their brothers and sisters seriously. They go hand in hand. Now, I know this is hard, and I think this is why the writer of Hebrews says, come together to encourage one another. We need the mutual encouragement, and it will take tenacity to make sure that it keeps happening. So there's tenacity. The next word that I want us to look at is time. Time, you know, I think looking at verse 25 again, the writer says, hey, don't give up meeting together. I talk with many people, many people who have tried, not just at Ethos, but at other churches, and they say they have tried to find community and they've only been disappointed. And so many of them that I talk to, not all of them, but so many that I talk to, I say, well, how, how many times did you go? And like, well, I, I went like once or, or twice, you know. And we live in a culture that is programmed and trained us to think that everything, including deep friendship, can be microwaved. And it's just not true. Friendships and relationships and family that's worth having is worth putting time into. You know, and I have been guilty of this as well. I think one of the reasons that we give up so quickly on new friendships is that we tend to compare them with our old friendships. You know, the reality is, is that a month one friendship just feels very different than a year two, year three, year four friendship. You know, I can remember feeling this very really when my wife and I moved to Vancouver. I was leaving behind friends that I had gone through college with, friends that I'd gone through grad school with, friends that I'd gotten married alongside of, friends that I'd walked with for seven to eight years, and we moved to Canada, and I'm trying to help plant a church, and we're putting together a team of people that I've just met. All the while, I'm keeping tabs on what all my friends are doing on this thing called Facebook. And I'm just going to tell you, I think one of the great curses of social media is that it provides us with a safe and familiar tether to friends who are far away, preventing us from connecting with the very real people who are right in front of us. I remember being in Vancouver, we were there for about nine months, and I still felt lonely. And we had this team retreat with our church planning team, and we're praying for one another. There's about 10 of us there. And as they're praying for me, I just share with them, I'm like, I just feel so lonely. I haven't connected with any friends like what I used to have, and I miss them. And my wife, God bless her, she, she says, Aaron, I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me to tell you to open your eyes and look around. And I open my eyes and look, and there's 10 people surrounding me, praying for me, trying to encourage me, but I couldn't see what was right in front of me because all I could think about were the friends I was missing. Sometimes we miss out on what's right in front of us. And here's the thing, it takes time to develop those friendships. It just takes time. So if you go to a house church or you go to a small Christian community and you go once or twice and you go, ah, you know, these people are so different. They're different than me. They're different than my old friends. There's no way we would have anything in common. If you expect it to be quick, you will never have the tenacity that it requires to keep going back. But if you understand that it takes time, then you will have the tenacity to keep pressing in and understand that true and deep friendship starts off brand new and it only goes deeper and deeper as time permits, day after day, week after week, month after month of being together. And so deep Christian community comes from tenacity. It comes from time together. And then our third word is this word transparency. Look in verse 24. The writer of Hebrews says, 
And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Now that that phrase, spur one another on, is a really interesting phrase in Greek. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. Some of your Bibles might have the phrase, let's consider how we may stir one another up. And the other place that this word is used is used completely different. See, this word to stir up, it actually means to incite. And, and the other place that it is used it is describing an incitement between two friends, the Apostle Paul and his good friend Barnabas. They've had this sharp disagreement. It's the same word there. Something has stirred up between them. There's been this provoking and they actually end up parting ways. And so this incitement, this provoking can be either good or bad. In Acts 15, we see it in a negative sense. But here in Hebrews 10, the writer is using it in a positive way. He's saying, listen, there's something that we need as we come together. Let us consider how we might provoke or incite one another's souls towards love. In other words, it seems to suggest that loving one another will not just happen. It needs to be worked at even provoked, you know, this provocation of our souls. What does that feel like? What does that feel like to have your soul inside it or provoked? You know, it reminds me of a a small group or house church that my wife and I were a part of when we lived in Oregon. We lived in Eugene, Oregon for about two years. And we were part of a church there and wanted to get connected in a small group. And so some friends kind of directed us to a group that was made up of people a lot like us, you know, newlyweds, no kids, And so we went to this group and I remember coming into it and honestly just feeling what I've just been describing. I I wanted to walk away. It was like I walked in and it seemed like all the guys wanted to do was talk about sports or talk about coffee or all all they wanted to do, even when we opened the Bible, it was always just reduced to intellectual conversation about the Bible. There was never any kind of soul level conversation. And the reality is what was happening in my life was I was in a stage of transition and I was struggling. I was struggling with purity. I was looking at stuff on the internet that I didn't need to. I was struggling with my temper. I was treating my wife and talking to her in ways that I didn't need to be. And what I needed was a group of believers that could see the fullness of my soul and keep pushing me towards love. And while I kind of wanted to quit, my wife was like, no, let's, let's keep going. And she said, hey, what if, we, what if we broke up? What if we talked to them about a way to do this where we break into two groups, men and women? And we just have a time of praying for one another in a way that doesn't happen in the bigger group. And I said, that's a good idea. So we went to our small group and we said, hey, what if at the beginning of our time together, we broke up into men and women and the men spend some time praying for each other and the women do the same. And the group was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And so we break up. And I'll never forget this first night we did this. I sit down at a table, a kitchen table with five other guys and I'm looking at him. Up till that point, the most we'd connected was on just kind of laughter and talking sports. And I remember I'm getting ready to let my soul be seen by them. And I start to confess to them. Hey guys, I'm really struggling here. I'm struggling here. And I was amazed as I watched guy after guy go around the table and say, man, I've been there. Oh, me too. I'm so sorry. And I, I end up confessing things that I've done and they start confessing with me and we start praying with one another and the relational intimacy and connection that was in that group began to skyrocket. This was almost 10 years ago and we still have deep friendship with some of the couples that were in that group. In fact, some were visiting us in Nashville last year. You see, there's this provoking of our souls and we allow ourselves 
to be stretched into being fully known, to being transparent, to being real, where we begin to no longer feel completely isolated and alone, but we feel together on the journey. And so it takes tenacity, and it takes time, and it takes transparency. And I love what he says. He says, let us consider. Again, this is not something that's going to just happen. It's going to take some thought and some creativity. And the fourth word we're going to look at is this word truth. This word truth. You know, the reality is if you're lonely, there are no shortage of apps or social media platforms uh, that you can get onto that are there to try to put you in the company of other people. You know, one of the things I've realized is that when you use those type of avenues, what you're doing is you're typically connecting with like-minded people, people who kind of look like me, are interested in the same things as me, in the same stage of life as me. We're looking for the commonalities that hold us together. But here's one of the ironies that I've seen in this, is that anytime I come into a new environment, and I've seen this in myself, I've seen it in others, when I come into a new social group or a new friend group, although I say I'm interested in commonality, the things that stand out to me the most are the ways that everybody is different than me. I come in and all I can see are our differences. I see differences of where we grew up or how old we are or how much money we make or what our skin color is or what language we speak or whatever it goes on and on. I see our differences. And I think one of the, one of the things that the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is, hey, listen, your differences no longer have to drive you apart. So he says, listen, he calls us brothers and sisters. Therefore, brothers and sisters. And then in verse 22, let us draw near to God. In verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. In other words, I think what the writer there is saying is, listen, it is our shared hope and our shared identity that holds us together as brothers and sisters. When you come into the family of God, your differences don't disappear, but they are no longer a barrier to loving one another because now we have shared hope, shared identity in Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of what all the New Testament writers try to capture. I mean, you read through the New Testament and writer after writer is going, hey, listen, the things that used to divide you no longer divide you. Your different races and ethnicities are still there. Your different genders are still there. Your differences are still there, but no longer are you divided because of those differences, but you've been united because of a shared identity in Jesus Christ. And so the family of God is this diverse, inclusive community where people rally around the truth of our identity in Jesus, no longer separated by all the things that look different about us. Our differences don't separate us, but we rally around the truth of who we are in Jesus. You know, I experienced this tangibly again when I lived in Eugene, Oregon. My wife and I were actively working in a couple different ministries at the time, and we were doing campus ministry at the University of Oregon that was mostly made up of um, Asian students. Uh, we were a part of a homeless outreach ministry to homeless teenagers in downtown Eugene, Oregon. We were part of a church, well, that small group that I mentioned earlier, we were part of that. But also at this church, when we first moved there, we found ourselves around people that were older than us. When we first moved to Eugene, all of our friends were over 60, and we were both in our 20s, and we're like, man, what in the world are we doing hanging out with 60-year-olds, you know? Because here's the reality. We could have found every reason in the world to look at all those different areas and go, man, we are so different. 
On any given night of the week, we were sitting at a shelter with a homeless teenager who's addicted to methamphetamines and wanted us to pray for her. Or we might be at the campus ministry hanging out with Asian students who are new to Jesus or coming to know Jesus. Or we'd be hanging out with those that are older than us. And on any given night, we could have just said, man, we're all so different. What do we have in common? But Amy and I were always struck by the unity that we felt in every single group We were united by our hope in being called God's children, that that is what knit us together. And there's nothing, nothing that can destroy the bond of peace that comes from the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ. It is good to be united in Jesus. So if we want life together, if we want community, we begin to understand, as the writer of Hebrews says, it's going to take tenacity. It's going to take time and patience. It's going to take transparency and allowing our souls to be provoked a little bit with one another. And it's going to take rallying around the truth. You see, life with Jesus offers far more than personal piety or individual salvation, although it will give you both of those things. But it also offers the deep life of life together in Jesus. This morning, as I said, we're gonna be giving this invitation Some of you, some of you have been in church for a long time, and church has felt more like my experience on a crowded bus line in Vancouver than it has like being life together as a family. We've been surrounded by humanity but disconnected. And this morning, there is a step for you to take where you can begin to press through with tenacity and giving it time to where you can begin to connect in a new way. And what this is, is joining a house church. Some of you have been to Ethos for a long time and you've never tried to join a house church. Some of you are brand new to Ethos and you're wondering how do you get more connected. And so each of you will have had a card that looks like this on your seat and says find community at the top of it. And this card contains everything you need to know for how to get connected with a small group of believers who are interested in running with you you as you want to follow Jesus. And so there's a a website on here, housechurch.ethoschurch.org. You can sign up on your phone, you can sign up on a computer, but what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna have opportunity after our gathering in here to go upstairs to the third floor. We will have house church leaders wearing blue ethos shirts and we'll have parts of the city kind of labeled around the room and myself and other parts of our team will be there to help you navigate the app. Everything that you need to be able to step into this community, but remember, it requires tenacity. Will you have the tenacity to press through maybe some awkward conversations and go sign up for a new house church? And this is your first step to going deeper in community. For some of you, you've been in house churches and you know, the first step isn't signing up for the first time. For some of you, you've been in house churches and maybe you've given up. Maybe after a couple years and not feeling very connected, you're like, well, I'm not gonna give that a try again. And the invitation this morning is, hey, will you step in with a tenacious spirit? Will you step in and try to be transparent and transparently known by the group of people that you're with and see what the Holy Spirit might do? For those of you that are already in house churches, you don't need to sign up again. But I encourage you in your conversations with one another, share why it's worth it. Talk to your friends who've never stepped into a smaller intentional Christian community and talk to them about why it has been worth it in your life. So when we're done with our gathering, Dave's gonna give you more information for kind of where to go, how to get connected. Um, But what I wanna encourage us with is we're gonna get ready to take communion. We're gonna worship. You know, every week when we come around the bread and the cup, it is the body and the blood of Jesus. 
we are reminded that we are not taking this journey alone, that we do it with one another. And the same principles that guide us in trying to connect at a smaller level, like in a house church, happen right here on Sundays. That as you connect over the body and the blood of Jesus, that you can go deeper, you can share, allow your soul to be provoked, even this morning. So if you need prayer this morning, we'll have men and women at the Respond Banner over here. We'd love to pray for you. I'm gonna pray for all of us right now, and then we'll go take communion and continue in our time of worship. Let's pray with one another. God, I know personally um, in my life, I'm just deeply grateful for the role that your family has played in me coming to know you. And Lord, in some of the lowest parts of my life, when tragedy has struck or when I have felt like a failure, it has been your family, my brothers and sisters in Jesus that have come around and lifted me up. Father, I pray that for our whole church. I pray that your church, your global church around the world, all of us as brothers and sisters, would truly grasp the beauty of the unity that you've given us in Jesus. Lord, will you give us tenacious hearts? Will you give us patience with one another? Will you help us remember that each of us, although we've been made perfect by Jesus, we are still being made holy. May we be gracious with each other and kind with each other. Lord Jesus, will you invite us into the full life of doing life together as we chase after you? I love you, Lord. We are your people. This is your family. I pray, Lord, that this morning as we worship and as we commune, that you would have your way and do whatever you want to do amongst us to the glory of your name. Love you, Lord. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.